If you're a creative person, your success is the number of people that can actually see what you're doing. My mission is space, balance, and preservation. The space that we're actually creating, the lack of space that we actually have, the online space that's there, how do we start to balance that out? We talked about the wealth gap and the digital divide. We really want to be able to start having these types of conversations. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of Our Future City. We'll discuss how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. One of the most important values in our design community is equity. Frameworks that prioritize equity recognize that each individual, no matter how they identify or where they're from, deserve the same opportunities to thrive in society. With us today are two extraordinary guests, Clayton Banks and Richard Pelzer II. Their work centers around building bridges between resources, communities, and people in an effort to assist them in achieving their dreams, whether right here in New York City or across the country. Together, we'll talk about how passion, technology, equity, and the arts can guide our future vision of New York City and beyond. We're so happy to have you both here. Welcome. Clayton, I'd like to introduce you. You are the CEO and founder of Silicon Harlem, a venture whose goal is to combine innovation, technology, and global connectivity to engage sustainable economic engines in communities across the states. Working with both the public and private sectors, Clayton has positioned Upper Manhattan as a tech and innovation hub and has established critical STEM programs in public schools and nonprofits in an effort to prepare New Yorkers for jobs in the 21st century. He has been awarded many honors, including this year's City and State Telecommunications Power 50, where he was recognized for his role in bridging the broadband gap in Harlem. Clayton Banks, thank you so much for joining me here today on the mic. Well, thank you, Debbie, and thank you to all of the great work you and your colleagues are doing and, and, and from a design perspective. Before I say anything really about myself, you said enough, but I wanted to put a challenge out there for anyone that's in the design space. There's something on my mind. Hello, there's something on my mind, designers. Tell us everything, Clayton. So one of the things that we have a pain point in New York City is with some of our public housing. They don't have the same privileges when it comes to having things delivered to their location. Difficult. A lot of us either have a door person or have a way to get to these deliveries. And public housing is not so easy. So I have a challenge for any design team out there that could come up with, how can we fix that? If they can get their mail, why can't we get a package? You know what I mean? Sorry, Debbie, just wanted to put that out there because there might be somebody out there that could actually solve this issue. Get in touch with me, mr.banks at 
com, we might be able to even put some funding behind it. So we'd love to figure out somebody to come up with an idea on how to make sure everyone has the same privilege of getting things delivered, given the way the world is going. Now, back to the real thing here, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a real thing too. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Clayton, Clayton, I'm so glad you've put that out there. I really hope that the designers listening can activate their design minds for this challenge. And maybe we can feature that on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, I'd love to know more about how Silicon Harlem came to be, its mission, what you hope to be accomplishing. Just tell us everything you can about this extraordinary organization you've started. You know, one of the things that was really clear to me in, in 2013 was internet was becoming more and more essential. We never, we never really used that kind of language in America at that time, but we knew how strong that technology was. And I known it for many, many years, even before that, because I worked in technology. So, so in 2013, one of the things I realized living in Harlem was, oh, gee, everybody knows about the great culture of upper Manhattan and the music and the food and the fun and the museums and art and all that stuff, which is extremely important. But I realized there wasn't really much of a conversation around technology. And all the meetups I used to go, Debbie, was downtown. I'd be in downtown or Brooklyn areas and, and meetups for, for many years. And I was like, how come we never have one in Harlem? And so I said to my team, you know, as I was putting stuff together, I said, why don't we just do a meetup in upper Manhattan and see what happens? And, and typical with a meetup, you're hoping 20, 25 people come out location where a friend of mine was building a building so I didn't have to pay any fees, uh, but it was still in construction. So I said, well, who cares? We've got 20 people coming. That's, what's the big deal? 500 people came. And that's when I said, oh my God, I'm not the only geek uptown. And so that's when they said, okay, we got to start, we got to capture this energy. We didn't even call ourselves Silicon Harlem right that, that night. We just said, hey, we just a bunch of tech geeks. Let's get it together. And that's when we created Silicon Harlem. And the first thing that I figured out was we should try to at least survey the community. What's going on here? And out of that was, oh, gee, 40% of people don't have internet in the home. I was appalled. You got to be kidding me, right? So I went on a tear to try to fix this. And I started with the incumbents. I said, why aren't you doing more? to make sure everyone's connected. And they all had a sense of, yeah, okay, yeah, what do you think, Clayton? And, you know, we try to do a few things together, but it turns out up till 2020, it stayed at the same data. In East Harlem, it's up to 50%. So I was like, whoa, over seven years of me busting my butt trying to tell people about this, no one really had made a major move until the pandemic struck. And as, Terrible as it was, it turned out to be a blessing for all of us who've been advocating for that infrastructure, right? For broadband. And, and so that's really why Silicon Harlem was created, why it's still in the game. And it, it turns out that it goes across the board, not only technology, but it's critical to the design and the creativity to ensure that everyone's not only receiving, but thriving with it. So 
that's really sort of the, the, the core of what we do. We do a lot of advanced research. We do a lot of education, workforce development. But at the end of the day, what we will be most known for is the ability to be a service provider, an actual internet service provider. We will be in that game for years to come to ensure that everyone is connected. It's quite astonishing to hear these types of statistics. I think that so many people take internet access, digital access for granted, but there is quite an extreme number of people in the United States, particularly in poorer communities, that don't have adequate access to to the internet. And that is, especially during a pandemic, more critical than ever before. How are you able to provide digital services to your clients now? So what we did was we had been sending a lot of correspondence to our electives. And that was even before the pandemic. But certainly when the pandemic hit, we got much more aggressive on here's what needs to happen. Here's what we, we need to be thinking about. And uh, what was interesting to me was in January of 2020, right? Nobody talked about COVID. Nobody even knew about that. January 2020, we had a meetup, a few hundred people, and we had the CTO of New York City come and speak. And it was great. We had, you know, John Paul Farmer and I are friends. We know each other. But he unveiled for the very first time in history in Harlem, he unveiled the Internet Master Plan. This is pre-pandemic. And so I was so proud that that happened in Harlem, right? That that usually happens downtown or some fancy place, whatever. He actually came to Harlem and presented the Internet Master Plan. And on that same night, Debbie, I said to myself, I'm changing the motto of, of Silicon Harlem from everyone deserves a connection. I said, I'm changing it to everyone needs a connection. And 30 days later, <laughs> what? Everybody needed a connection. So the sustainability of that now and, and what we do to keep on serving is we're actually, we're not bashing anyone that's in this space. We just want to know, we believe that a part of the Internet Master Plan was, boy, there ought to be more choices for people. So in a lot of parts of this city, you get one or two choices. Now we're going to see 10, 12, 15 different choices. What will that do? That will lower the price. What does that do? That allows more people to get online. I'm hopeful very soon, within the next five years, that everyone's connected and not barred by cost. If we do that, we all of a sudden can solve issues that are really relevant, like, hey, how about sickle cell anemia? You know what I mean? There's things like this that can be solved if we get all the brain power to the table. We leave too many of our New Yorkers behind because of internet, really? Come on, we got to give that basic uh, infrastructure for everybody to, to participate in the solutions that we're trying to drive here. So that's the way we look at it. We, we serve, we build out the networks, Debbie. We actually do the physical work. We work with the uh, residents themselves for adoption that they can see now there's an affordable option that you have. Uh, we do training. We had, we're doing work in St. Nicholas Housing right now. We did some workforce development. One of the people that completed the curriculum is actually now hired and working in the neighborhood he lives in providing internet. This is how you create an ecosystem that can help everybody. 
Because at the end of the day, well, we don't talk enough about that. I mean, we can maybe talk about it another time, but we don't talk enough about the wealth gap. I hear the word digital divide and all that kind of stuff. I used to use that word a lot, but digital divide is a little bit misleading. It's just the start of the conversation because in New York City, you can find electronic plates everywhere. The question is, can you afford it? You know, so we got to get straight on our, our language here. Let's make sure that we're giving people an opportunity to drive their money up, be able to drive up their, you know, socioeconomic ladder. There's so much more we have to do. And it starts with broadband. Rather than digital divide, what other terminology do you think would be more appropriate? I think we have to address what's called the wealth gap. We got to look at that. If you look at the wealth gap, hear me good on this. Since the 1950s, it's been the same wage gap and the same wealth gap. That is crazy. If you look at it from a numeral perspective, it would take over 230 years for the wealth gap to be evened out. Everyone will be dead. What are we talking about here? So we have to address that because if you want a safer place to live, if you want to have our neighbors thriving, you have to address this issue. And it's not really that difficult. It actually just doesn't want to be talked about because the reason why we often think, oh, that means I get to lose something? No, nobody has to lose. Everybody benefits when you do the best for the least of us. Everyone benefits. There's many, many examples of that. So that's the way I, Debbie, think we have to address that language. Clayton, when the world shut down, we saw so many young people having to continue their education from their living rooms or their bedrooms or their kitchens. And so not only was there an issue with internet access, my brother teaches special education upstate. I'm an educator here in New York City. I found that quite a lot of people didn't have the hardware to be able to access the internet properly. Are you also looking at, in addition to providing the technology to get people online, allow people to stay online? Boy, am I happy you said this. This, <laughs> Let's all have a crying moment now. We're going to just cry together. Yep. I'm going to talk about this. To, let's all just cry together. It's that sad. So because yep. I've been at a variety of talks and everything else, and people will say, well, you know, hey, listen, everyone's got a smartphone. Really? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, I'll tell you the sad story. So 2020, when the COVID hit hard, one of the things the mayor said in early April was that there was a potential of closing down the SVEP program, the Summer Youth Employment Program. That's a real pandemic. No school, no jobs. Really? Teenagers? You've got to be kidding me. So so I turned my, my focus to how many kids could I take on in the summer? to make sure that they stay out of trouble. And so we took on 120 kids, and normally we take maybe 20 kids a year. We took 120 kids in 2020. So we broke it up over the summer in different cohorts. And, and that whole curriculum is around coding, learning how to code and all this other stuff. And so we had one cohort of like 20 people, and I noticed three of them were not keeping up. They kept falling behind, falling behind. And when I asked my team, find out what's going on here. And it turned out those three people did not have a computer. They were trying to do the course on a cell phone. And if anybody knows about coding, you cannot do it on a cell phone. Impossible. There's just keystrokes you can't do. So, so I don't want to hear this that, oh, well, everyone has a phone. That should be fine. 
No, that's why, yeah, they can be good consumers, but they're not makers. I mean, what are we doing here when we don't allow everyone to get a shot being an owner or a creative or somebody like that? And so, yes, I'm so happy you bring this up because there's a million stories like that. So, yes, I am working on it from a research perspective, working with some of the best universities in this country to figure out how can we lower the cost of a real computer. And one way to think about that that we're doing is we have the infrastructure in my company where what's old is new again. Some of you on this call will never know what I'm probably talking about, but back in the day there was a thing called a mainframe. And everybody had a dumb terminal on their desk. And you would log into that mainframe, still look like it's your own computer. We're trying to look at some new ways of doing that, right? So that the, the biggest expense of a computer is its processing power. If I can take that out and make that accessible, the computer can be almost free. Imagine unleashing the expertise and, and the creativity of our country by getting rid of that barrier, Debbie. That, that's such a beautiful future if you look at it from my perspective. Clayton, how did you first get involved in this type of advocacy? And so I have a two-part question. The first is, how did you first get involved? And the second is, how do you fundraise to keep your enterprise robust? Well, there's two things to that. So one is, I, I realized very early in life how much access and exposure I had. I grew up in a very wealthy household. Not in money. <laughs> wealthy in encouragement and powerful sayings and you know my parents were not rich but they definitely had a wealth of advice and instruction and leadership and all this other stuff so that just got baked into me not everybody gets that i get it but i feel like everyone can get it and it just needs more access and exposure if you have exposure you get access when you have access you get opportunity when you get opportunity you create a sustainable model for yourself let's reverse if you don't have exposure you don't have any access if you don't have any access you don't have opportunities very limited that's a recipe for poverty what's the solution clayton we need to give people more exposure <laughs> that's all you let them go from there. This is not, I worked for President Clinton. Always used to say, hey, listen, intelligence is distributed everywhere evenly, but access and exposure is not. That's all we gotta do. And so yes, I had that in my life and I've had it since, right? I've traveled all over the world. So as a result, I go to Panama, I meet the mayor, next thing you know, we can, we can do business together, right? Access, exposure, opportunity, get something done. If you don't get a chance to do that, you might go a different way. So that's been a big part of it. And the second piece was, I mean, it's real simple to me. I grew up in the whole area of communications. I worked in the cable business. I worked on, for Showtime, I love movies. So I had the great honor to do that. I worked for Sega Channel, which was the first all digital network in the history of television. So I learned about the digital world in 1994, way before most people were even had. It was just when AOL was coming out. And, and then after that sort of went, took its role, I went over to Comedy Central, was able to help be on the team that launched South Park and Jon Stewart and all that stuff. So I've had this great stuff that I love to do anyway and benefit from it. And I felt 
an obligation to pass it on. I'm not done, don't get me wrong, I'm still kicking. But I feel like, what if I could just open up enough exposure and let the world go? I mean, if it, you, kids in our neighborhood in Harlem running around on these bikes and motorbikes and making all this noise and people are all upset, get them off the street, destroy these machines. No! They're mechanical engineers. We just don't give them the notes, the curriculum, the stuff. They could be building rockets. Instead, they're building their own bikes without even instruction. So that's why I know I need to pass on my exposure or at least the idea of exposure and let it go from there. I have no doubt we will succeed. In addition to the challenge you posed at the top of the show, for those listening, what what is one thing that they can do to help really bridge this, for lack of a better term, this digital divide? What is one thing that they can do to make things better? Well, I, I would continue to advocate for everyone to be connected. I would really ask, no matter what your background is, no matter what your vision is, please include everyone being connected. That is no longer a nice thing or a simple thing. It's a essential thing. And for if you're a creative person, your success is the number of people that can actually see what you're doing. And if they don't have, have this infrastructure, you know, then we're, we're all working inside of a vacuum. So I am advocating for everyone on this call, whatever part of this conversation is for you, please include access to the internet. And this is not a long-term issue. We're going to solve it. It's going to happen. We don't have to talk about water in the house anymore, right? At one point we did. We, did, we used to have to talk about electricity. That's no longer an issue. We're not going to have this issue in the next 10, 15 years, but I need everyone to keep their voice pushing hard on this and thinking outside the box as creatives do on how this can be easier and better for everyone. But I think it's very important that we all realize that our real future success will be dependent upon the unleashing access and exposure. And, and we'll find that, if you will, cure of cancer, we'll find out the and, and really leverage space technology that I'm really into lately. All these things start to really become accessible for everybody. And we all can be not only consumers, but real makers. Let's do that. Clayton Banks, thank you so much for doing this important work, for sharing what you're doing and how you're doing it, and for joining us here today on the mic. If you could stick around for a bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I chat with Richard E. Pelzer II. Well, thank you for having me, and I will stay on. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to welcome our next guest, Richard E. Pelzer II, the founder, president, and CEO of Mega Personalities, a business development management firm based in New York City, working with clients in the fashion, beauty, and entertainment industries. He's also the co-founder of Harlem CLX, formerly known as Harlem 2020, an initiative that develops and promotes local businesses in Harlem. His latest venture is as executive producer of the films, 90 Days, Burden, All Boys Aren't Blue, and It Can Be Done, 
Ending Homelessness in America, written and directed by Nathan Hale Williams. Richard, so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Debbie. I mean, just you saying it, I started to get emotional, like, oh my God, I did all that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love hosting the show because every single person that comes on this show is making a difference and doing something extraordinary. And it's incredibly inspiring. So thank you. Richard, you clearly have a deep love of arts, entertainment, and business, a really interesting intersection of those disciplines. Tell us more about how your various passions began and how you created this intersection of all three. I live, work, play, and invest in Harlem. So Harlem is my home. I moved here from Cleveland, Ohio about 27 years ago. And I consider myself now a Harlem Knight because I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. And when I got here, it gave me a chance to really see my neighborhood because Harlem happens to be a neighborhood which is on the island of Manhattan, which is a part of New York City, which is a part of New York State and so on and so on and so on. And my connection was was very, very vast. I started off as a talent manager for a modeling agency. I got a chance to see people got paid to talk on the phone and negotiate and work with all different types of creatives. And I wanted to see how I would be able to start to connect that within my community. So I started doing stuff on community boards and started hearing other problems and issues and saying, hey, what can I actually do? And that's how I got started. And then in 2012, I heard about this wonderful organization called NYC in Design. And we were all invited by Christine Quinn to come to Times Square to see. And that was my first, you know, inkling of, wow, look at all of these creative professionals. And just listening to her opening response, and I I went with my best friend, Ulysses Williams, who is the executive director for um, Our Crawl Harlem here in in Harlem. And it really expanded our our minds of how we would be able to, you know, assist. And one of the things that I was doing at the time, and and as you mentioned, my company was Mega Personalities, and and I was working with a number of different businesses. At that time, we were trying to figure out how we would be able to start to connect with other small business owners in the um, the Harlem area. I was working with 20 different businesses at the time. So the initiative was called Harlem 2020. So it was 20 businesses and I encouraged them to hire at least one person. The goal was, I would love to be that marketing slash promotions person because a lot of small businesses at that time, Richard, hey, I'm having a hard time just making payroll. I'm having a hard time keeping the lights on. So you're now asking me to do some of these promotions four or five, six months ahead. I don't know what's going to actually happen four days ahead. So I wanted to be that second set of hands for the community to kind of come in and saying, hey, we have this wonderful citywide initiative that we're talking about, you know, design and all different types of design. It gave me that opportunity to start working with small business owners, nonprofits. I was working also with New York City Go with all of the tourists that were coming to visit Harlem. How do I start connecting that? I started seeing, hey, this is this ecosystem of workforce development. If we can start to train people into different things. I would say that the past eight, nine years, I've been just putting all of those pieces together. 
then all of a sudden the pandemic hits. And when the pandemic hits, we went from live events to virtual events. And what does that actually look like? And how do we start to connect people? And it gave us a chance to start to open, you know, my neighborhood to people around the world. And this past May for New York Design Week, we created a platform called Footprint. And Footprint really was how we would be able to talk about design within our community, in our, in our space, through our eyes. And sneaker culture happened to be that. And I partnered up with a, a gentleman, Jeff Henderson at Good Things. He's worked with Nike and a number of different large organizations. And we just started talking and he was like, you know, Richard, from conception to completion, 19 people touched that sneaker. And I was really excited. And at the same time, wow, I didn't know that. And I'm sure that there's a number of other people that didn't know that either. And what does that really look like? And are there opportunities that uh, we would be able to participate in? When you think of Harlem, one of the big places that you think of is the Apollo Theater. And we went to the Apollo Theater and they put us in touch with their education department. And we tied in our small businesses. We tied in a number of our schools and we tied in our professional designers such as Jeff to really talk about what they're actually doing, the opportunities that are there, if you're interested in, in, in design. And it just it kind of blew up from, from that point. So 2020 was kind of a tricky year. When I came up with the initiative Harlem 2020, we really weren't thinking about the year. As I mentioned, it was 20 businesses to hire one person. So it was 2020. And so we decided that we needed to rebrand. And so that's where Harlem CLX came into play, which is really Harlem Click. And that's what we are, Harlem Click, which is create, learn, and experience. So I'm utilizing all of that now to be able to expand. We're working with a number of different businesses. We're working with a, a number of different professional creatives. The thing right now, my, my mission or what I always talk to people about is space, balance, and preservation. You know, the space that we're actually creating, the lack of space that we actually have, the online space that, that that's there, how do we start to balance that out? We talked about the wealth gap and the digital divide. We really want to be able to start having these types of conversations. And then the preservation. I mean, there are people that have started these things before for whatever reason, it hasn't always worked out or we just need to, to rethink, reconnect um, our community and you know, I don't have to, you know, start all over again. I mean, I can really start to build and that's where that, that preservation really part comes into play. So in my little elevator speech, which was a long, a big elevator, I would actually say that's a little bit about me and what I'm actually been working on. It sounds extraordinary. How do you determine the types of businesses and the designers to collaborate with? So... I try to be as open as possible because again, as I mentioned, I wanted to be able to create the space. So when people actually come, there's certain things that I never really thought about. As I said, we actually have this gentleman who actually does rugs. And so now he's designing these amazing rugs. And we, we actually have a, another young lady who is really into hair and beauty. And I'm also doing as Broadway starts to open up, I'm starting to introduce them into a whole nother area that they didn't even 
think about that, yeah, we would, act, there's, there's areas there that would be willing and open to, to expand. So I try to keep it as open when it comes to design or the areas of design from architecture to, you know, all of the, the creative, even to the online businesses that we actually have, because again, how do we start to connect with people? This whole social media in itself and the way that it's actually set up as a design is a whole nother communication. So I try to keep it as open as possible when I'm working with people. The basics are still the same. The idea, do you have a business plan? Do you have this? Do you have cer certain things that are, are necessary to be successful for your business? And then how can we assist and help you with the connection? So even this platform right now, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners haven't even heard of me or my business, but I have over 32 different, you know, businesses that I would love for them to come and check out and see. The website is down right now because we officially launched on November 15th. It would be harlemclx.nyc. Wonderful. Hopefully you will be just barraged with people that want to come and help on November 15th. Harlem has one of the richest, most vibrant histories of of and in the arts and last year you celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance with Harlem CLX. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the ways in which you plan on evolving? Yeah, I think that if you look at the African American experience or the culture, the migration of folks moving from the south to the north, most of them went to DC or Philadelphia, came to New York. If you came to New York, pretty much migrated into to Harlem. And as I mentioned to folks, you know, Harlem is a neighborhood. We're not a borough, but we can compete right next to the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island. So I'm very excited about that. And when you really look at the landscape of the United States, the other city that I think that is just as rich is, would be New Orleans. New Orleans is, is known for their food, their music, their culture, their people, and they really market and promote that to this day. And it, it's a, a full-on community kind of thing. And that's what I'm excited about what we're creating here in Harlem, because we say community is our superpower. And if I would be able to really start to connect all of these different people to celebrate, and it's changing. It's changed from, you know, the way that people actually envision it. But Every decade for those past 100 years has really developed and changed. I, I've met people that have been living in Harlem on the same block with their family for 100, for 100 years. And me as a newbie, which they call me a newbie, oh, you, you're, you're, you're kind of new. And I'm like, I've been here for 27 years. Like, no, we've been here five generations. And they can really count, count it back. And I'm just so excited because we are this neighborhood is still a small homegrown town within a big city. So I, I would like to continue that, that feeling for folks to be able to say, yes, Harlem does have the opportunity to withstand in this city, this state, and even in the, the country at, at large. You're also working with Real MN Productions on a new Broadway campaign. Really, really excited about this. I understand that Real MN is Broadway's premier multicultural marketing and PR agency. It's run by Black women, which is phenomenal. How did you arrive at your partnership with them and this new initiative? And when do you think we'll begin to see some of what you're doing? 
Yes, so I'm very excited about it. And we say reel them in. We're reeling in our community. And we came up with a campaign called Broadway is for You. And the owner, Tony Israel, I've worked with her for the past five years. And she tapped me on the shoulder and said, Richard, Broadway is opening up and we really want to be able to figure out how we would be able to, you know, get the community to actually come in. And the reason that we came up with Broadway is for you, because if you live in New York City, these are some of the things that you probably say about Broadway or in that Times Square area. Broadway is not for us, it's for tourists. Broadway is not for us, it's for, you know, folks that actually have a lot of money. And it, they gave us all of these different reasons why they wouldn't even really kind of go to Broadway. So we really wanted to actually really start to talk about what that actually looks like. On August 4th, when Broadway opened up, we had the access of working with five different Broadway shows. They actually had to do tech rehearsals and dress rehearsals. We came up with the idea to talk to producers that, you know, as you're doing a tech rehearsal or, or a dress rehearsal, we would like to invite some of the members of the community to come and see the show. And we did that with a show called Passover. Over that was at the August Wilson Theater. And we also- It was amazing. Yes. An incredible play, incredible play. I just have to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was just mind-blowingly good. And we also did it with the, the musical Town. And we brought over today over 4,000 people across the, the New York City area to actually come and experience Broadway in a very different, different way. I lead with the audience. So as a community engagement person, we're actually talking to the theater owners and the producers, because when you walk to the theater, most time folks just say, tickets, please. Well, can you actually say, Thank you for coming after 18 months and you're sacrificing your life to sit down in a space for 88 minutes. We appreciate you. Like if we would be able to do that and our community and, and folks now are looking at theater and live theater in a very different way. And those producers and those theater owners are saying, what does theater look like 10 years, 15 years from now, and what does this audience look like? And that's the part that excites me so much is about really understanding on how we would be able to connect with these larger institutions, with these smaller businesses, because again, if I'm actually going to a theater, I'm hungry. I probably want to go and talk about it somewhere after and creating these spaces and places where we would be able to continue to thrive. So again, it, it really does line up with Harlem, Harlem Click and what we're actually doing. So having this opportunity gave me a, another chance to rethink how I'm actually talking to community. I'm so happy to hear what we really need to do in this city is future-proof Broadway so that nothing, nothing, nothing ever closes it down again. Richard E. Pelzer II, thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to ask Clayton to come back so all three of us can talk together. Clayton... Come on back. So to, to kick off our combined conversation, I'd like to ask you both, where are some of your favorite places in Harlem? Well, from a restaurant perspective, I love so many. One that's right close to my office is called The Edge. And I just think The Edge is it's a women-owned business, and it is so good. A nice mixture of foods, island-driven and things of that nature. So but the vibe is also cool, indoor, outdoor seating. So I love that. I love 
City College, which is the most diverse college in the country, I believe. And certainly the new mayor came out of City College. Colin Powell came out of City College. And I love the current president of City College. So I, I say that, again, it's walking distance from everything from me. So being able to be around very smart and capable and dreaming students is just a great vibe to be involved in. Certainly, you can never pass up 125th Street. That's a that's a real, you know, ex- experience. So walking on 125th Street is a lot of fun. And and 135th, this is a secret. Let's see if Richard even knows. But 135th Street, you know, because when you when you talk about oh, where's what's Harlem about? 125th Street is of course it comes straight to the mind. But if you really think about 135th Street, let me just walk you through real quick. It has elementary, middle school, high school on 135th Street, and right after that is City College. It's got a YMCA. It has arts and, and a heritage along it. And here's the very cool piece. It has a walk of fame on 135th Street. A lot of people don't walk right by it. There's don't even, but there's a walk of fame on 135th Street from the creative world. So 135th Street has the... Schomburg, the most important library for African-American studies. It has Harlem Hospital, one of the top hospitals in the country. 135th Street is a beautiful corridor, and I love it. I would actually say 125th Street because, again, believe it or not, from river to river, we have 13 sneaker stores. So if you want some sneakers, 125th Street is a, a great place to actually go. One of my Wonderful and favorite restaurants happens to be Pani Bistro on Adam Clayton Powell. So their brunch is amazing. They have this $17 French toast. And I'm like, I need to taste what $17 French toast tastes like. But it's actually really, 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 really good. So I would actually say that. And then if you're familiar with Jamel Mansion, that's another wonderful, great place in in Harlem as well. So if you get get a chance to check out the Jamel Mansion, I would you know, suggest that to Richard, come on, don't tell our secrets, man. Not that is, <laughs> don't tell everybody our secret. We don't want them all up in our joint like that, man. Nah, that's true though. What, what he's saying is true. You're talking about the uh, cobblestone streets. It's it's it actually was the original home for George Washington, our very first president of the United States. So it's a it's an area that's coveted in many ways. And Mr. Lee Manuel actually wrote parts of Hamilton in there to get the inspiration. So it's a very cool, cool location. One place that I've loved going to, I think everybody knows Red Rooster, Marcus Samuelson's wonderful restaurant in Harlem. But I don't know that they all know about the Little Supper Club that's downstairs, which plays some great jazz, great music. And Jenny. that's a yeah, really Jenny's. wonderful place to go. And they also have the best fried chicken in the world. So just just putting that out there. I'd love to ask you both. Tell I got to take you to a few more places. But anyway, oh, yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on Harlem's creative identity. When it comes to creative, I've, I've, I've seen, again, so many people move to the, the Harlem community or the the Harlem area, because again, we have Columbia this year, City College is actually here. The inspiration for music, which we have 
off the Harlem Opera. So I don't know if you guys are, are familiar. We do have a, an opera here as well. And I find it to be really interesting when folks are really looking at that, that history of the beginning. And that's why preservation is so important to me. The Schomburg is an amazing center to start your studies. So again, with artists, I think that the resources that we actually have here is, is wonderful and amazing. And I encourage all of my professional creatives to utilize them because they are here for us. We have just about seven libraries in our neighborhood, which I'm very, very excited about, and they're here to be used. Yeah, I would just piggyback on that. It's always good to throw out some statistics. So in addition to what you're saying, Richard, we have 14 colleges in Harlem. Hello, 14 colleges. That means like more than a lot of states in this country. So we have not only a brain trust in Upper Manhattan, but an unleashing amount of creativity. If you walk, remember uh, in 2020 when we all started with the whole Black Lives Matters after the, the young man was killed, you should have seen the streets of Harlem. I mean, wonderful markups on our streets, the uh, murals that were being built. It was just extraordinary. It reminded you back in the 60s when people were doing stuff like that. It was just amazing on how artistic this area is, but that's all of New York City. I'm just saying that design and creativity and art is so baked into Harlem that you almost can't even see it anymore. It's like, it's just that pungent in our area. So that's something I love. I consider myself creative, but on a technical side. And we're seeing more and more of that digital technology art as well. So I think, it is balancing out some of the disparities that we suffer from in Upper Manhattan, whether it's our health. We have the largest area of kids that are suffering from asthma. We see what's happening with violence and all these type of things. The creativity, the art, the work that NYC Design is doing, all that stuff that Richard is doing is balancing this stuff out. We could be in far worse position if we didn't have the creativity being driven by both of you guys on this call. And just to add to that, I mean, creating these types of spaces where folks would be able to tap into their creativity, because it's not always highlighted and celebrated within our families. Usually folks say, I want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a candlestick maker. But when it, it gets to a point of you really being a professional creative, it's a, a whole nother mindset. I mean, I have to be an entrepreneur. There's a number of different things that need to actually happen for us to be successful. And that's the reason I love our, our neighborhood because again, 4.5 miles away is this beautiful airport that was actually created here, a gateway where more people would be able to come to be able to see and visit this particular area that is known around the world. As we start to harness all of this, and I love the word brain trust and, and our workforce development, we all can succeed. That's why I always say community is our superpower. And I've been really for the past eight, nine years tapping into all of those different areas. So we would be able to highlight it. You both have been so 
involved in pioneering new ways to create access for communities. There's something happening now in New York City that I think is really important I want to ask you about, especially as Broadway is is sort of reblooming. We have probably more than ever before in history of Broadway, Black voices really prominent on the stage. So we talked a little bit about Antoinette Nwandu's play Passover, Jeremy O'Harris's play, Slave Play is coming back. We have Lynn Nottage has a number of plays coming to Broadway. And Kenan Scott's play, of course, Thoughts of a Colored Man. How can we ensure that this diversity in voices on Broadway continues. And it's not just a moment in time, but becomes the way in which we see Broadway and experience Broadway. I'm very concerned about who's behind the scenes. I haven't seen a lot of African-American women or African-American men or behind the scenes. I get those that are creating the plays, putting them out on Broadway, but there's a whole lot of jobs on Broadway that I haven't seen a lot of diversity. I think that needs to be addressed to get to the point you're making for this to be robust and accessible and everyone get a shot, you know, to the point what Richard said earlier about, you know, families thinking, ah, it's not for us. This is for people with money and all this stuff. Some of that comes from the point that we don't have people on the back end of the scene Irene Gandy, she's one of these like real popular person in broadband probably nobody knows except for us in Harlem. We all know Irene Gandy. She's an African-American woman, one of the few that has received all the awards you can possibly get. But there's very few Irene Gandys behind the scenes. So I think once we address that, Debbie, then we, we find that we'll find that success even further than where we are today. I'm going to piggyback off of Mr. Banks because opportunity is so important in creating these opportunities and awareness that folks be able to know that these jobs do exist. And I think that that's one of the big things that I've noticed because I can sit into these marketing meetings and production meetings and folks are like, I didn't know that. I mean, that's the reason you're bringing me in. So I would be able to connect you with certain people, but it can't be transactional all the time. You have to start to be able to figure out Broadway must come to us just like we are going to them. <laughs> and I say this that to everyone, we all can win. And creating those opportunities for folks to be able to see how it really works, to me, people believe what they see and they buy what they believe. But for me, it's, it's more than that. So I lead with my audience, I lead with my passion, and I lead with the hope and the possibilities that these opportunities do exist. Because I can sit here and name a ton of folks that you may have never heard of before, but they are just as qualified to be in if they had those opportunities to be there. So again, I'm trying to make those connections. I'm also trying to be that PR person to say, hey, check this person out and then make sure that they're ready. So there's another thing that I also have to do too, because I'm gonna give you the opportunity, but folks you know, need to also be ready and prepared for those times when that actually happens. And we can do that within our own community. So again, I love Broadway too, but we also have four theaters too. And I don't wanna call them community theaters, but theaters where actors and writers and producers could also be able to, to show and entertain our community as well. So. I just wanted to share that. I'm wondering if there is a need for something 
like what Wendy McNaughton and various colleagues put together several years ago. It's a website called Women Who Draw. And it was because people were saying, well, we want to hire women illustrators, but we don't know where to find them. And so they put together a website where women, women of color, this is a place where anybody can go. And now magazines like The New Yorker are featuring a lot more women and women of color as illustrators for the magazine cover. There's also another site called People of Craft that Timothy Goodman and a number of his colleagues put together, and that's for craftspeople. So I'm wondering if there's a way to put together a hub so people can say, well, I, I want to hire these people. I just don't know how to find them so that they can be found. Yes, I think that that's also important. And one of the other things that we we touched on, and I want to try to also say too, is this multi-generational piece as well. Because again, as a person, I would say 50 plus, I wasn't always celebrated to be an artist, but that's my second part of my my life. So I can now go back and be this actor or this artist or this designer as well. And I'm starting to see a lot more folks that have been championing their children or a, a younger generation and then saying, I want this, this chance too. So I've been noticing that. And that also comes with my entrepreneurial friends too. Like I've worked for corporate America for the past 17 years. Now I want to do it myself also has added to that as well. So I just wanted to kind of say, how do I start to even put these people, creatives in a room so they would be able to flourish? Yeah, the room where it happens. And the more access to internet, the better people will be able to find these opportunities as well. Yeah, my response is similar. I would just say that one of my visions over the next five to 10 years, there will be a plethora of of incubators and innovation centers and these type of things to where whatever your passion is, you're going to find your you know tribe in this incubator to get yourself prepared to have success. So the more we do that, the better, like the ones you mentioned, Demi. But it, let me give you this one example. It's a, a crying moment, but the, when the pandemic hit, when they started opening up the spaces to where you could get vaccinated, the very first two weeks or three weeks of it, you walk by those locations, there was like, where are the Harlemites? They were packed, lines around corners, but you didn't see any Harlemites. Like, what's happening here? All the information was online. <laughs> so if you had an internet connection, you knew where to go. If you didn't, you're like, what is this big line of people from somewhere else? <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad you mentioned broadband again. That's important. Absolutely. You're both visionaries in New York City. I have one last question for you both. What excites you the most about the future of New York City? I'm most excited, uh, again, and I'm just going, to, I, I said it already, I'm just gonna say it again, is the opportunity to be seen, to be heard, and to be able to represent myself authentically. And I'm realizing when I and and it's so funny, Mr. Banks likes to say it, and I say it all the time too, is when you find your tribe, you start to feel more empowered and inspired. And that's what I, I want to do for all of the black and brown boys and girls that are out there to say, you have a dream, you can do it too. And it's sometimes it's kind of like a little slogan, but I truly believe that if you see me and I'm 
touchable and he's not all the way up here and I'm down there doing the same thing. I want to inspire them that you can do this, whatever you want to be able to do. And I'm not rich, but I'm also wealthy as well because my grandmother used to tell me all the time, put your fingerprints on everything so people know that you were there. And that's what I do. Well, it's hard to follow that up, but I will say this, that for me, New York City is the greatest city in the world. However, we're not finished, and if we don't take care of ourselves, we won't be that. So I'm in it to win it. I'm in because New York City is the greatest city in the world, and the only way that we can ensure that it continues to be the greatest city in the world is when everyone has a shot. And it doesn't matter where you're from, where you were born, what you look like, when all of that disappears, the only thing left is making sure everyone has a shot. And if we do that, not only we will be the greatest city in the world, but the greatest city in the universe. There's people out there in the universe and right now, they're just flying right over because we look stupid. But I'm telling you, New York City is going to lead the way of the world to ensure that everyone has a shot. No matter how strange their passion is, everyone should have a shot. And it should be something that helps everyone in the long run. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. Thank you to our really special guests, Mr. Clayton Banks and Richard E. Pelzer II. You have inspired us with your work and with your insight and with your energy. NYC by design. <laughs> Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to our newsletter for the latest in New York City design.